Hey, welcome to the Word Weaver podcast, a place dedicated to the powerful web words weave and the deep layers they uncover. Here you'll find a compilation of tips, tricks, and words of wisdom from writers, authors, creatives, and entrepreneurs. Basically, cool people doing cool things in the world and how they've used words as weapons of mass creation and inspiration. You'll also hear from me, your host, Louise Johnson. I'm a former marketing maven in New York and Switzerland. I left a lucrative job to follow my dream of becoming a writer. It's a never-ending journey, so I figured we should all be in it together. I've learned a lot along the way, but it's a constant evolution. My favorite part is how little by little, letters turn into words, words become sentences, sentences become paragraphs, and before you know it, you've created something from nothing. And whenever that happens in life, it's nothing short of magic. So grab a coffee or a glass of wine, and let's dive into today's chapter. Hello, and welcome back to the Word Weaver podcast. I am very excited to introduce our guest today. Tatum is a freelance writer and curator living in Toronto. Her writing has appeared in Art Forum, The Globe and Mail, The Walrus, Vogue UK, and she was also a contributing writer for Teen Vogue. Tatum is also the founder of Canadian Art Forecast, has been featured on CBC, and Canadian Art Forecast showcases upcoming and mid-career Canadian artists. Happy Friday. It's a gray day here in Toronto. I wish we could do this in person. I know. Every day also kind of feels like the same day lately. So I was like, when you said it was Friday, I had to remind myself that was the actual date. I know. It's Groundhog Day every single day. So I just want to kick off kind of how we even met our little meet cute was how all great millennial romances started through Instagram, which I think is so fun. And I remember, do you remember our first date at Boxcar Social? Yeah, of course. I, yeah, I'm not sure who reached out to who, but I definitely remember following your Instagram and being so impressed with everything that you did. And so feeling like this was somebody I wanted to meet in person. Oh, that's so nice. And likewise, I felt the same way. And it feels like years ago where we could actually just go meet at a coffee shop, hang out. There's people buzzing around. I took that for granted, definitely. I know. It feels illicit now. I know. I first met you, actually, I think you were still working part-time at a bookstore and you were writing. And I remember thinking that was just the dreamiest life in the world. So before I dive into the more hard-hitting questions, I have to ask you what it was like to work at a bookstore. Is it as amazing and great as I've romanticized in my mind? I would say yes and no. I only worked at a bookstore for a couple months. I don't think that I was the best employee. Also, um, I don't like to be taken away from my writing that much. So I wasn't the best employee because I didn't want to do any of the inventory or shelving or, (laughs) you know, like the cash register. All I wanted to do was walk through the stacks, touch the books, read the backs, and then talk to customers and recommend things to read. And so I was really good at customer service and recommending books. And I would read so much. They would let me take books home and read them and then bring them back because I would read so quickly that they looked as if they were in mint condition. That's amazing. And so I like I took it upon myself to write little bookmarks about all of the books, just giving like a cut, like a couple sentence summary. And, you know, if you liked this book, you should read this book. And that was my contribution to the bookstore. Oh, um, that's so cool. Yeah, it, it was. And uh, luckily, they still give me my discount. So I pictured you like Meg Ryan and you've got mail. I mean, that would be the dream. I have um, a, like a pipe dream of owning an art gallery and a bookstore all in one, like the front where you have a suite of 10 books each month. And then in the back, it's uh, an art gallery, a little bit like flying books in Toronto. That is it. And it's going to happen. You put it out into the universe. So I believe it. Perfect. I'll keep you updated. <laughs> Please do. So we went into another lockdown yesterday in Toronto and I actually wanted to start off this podcast initially by reading an excerpt from an essay that you wrote. I think it was last year, Fossil Record. Yes, that was for a show I curated at General Hardware in Toronto. And I just felt like this sentence I'm about to read or this paragraph really captures the sentiments that a lot of people 
can relate to and are feeling now. So if you don't mind me reading your own words back to you, okay, this is the line that I just think is so poetic and beautiful. And it's, I've been thinking lately about the thin line between permanence and ephemera. Plants, flowers, performance, feelings, and life are all in a constant state of decay, only lasting a short period of time before they're gone. The only things I can think of as permanent are plastics, literature, and art. As the world changes around me, people die unexpectedly, relationships fade, a favorite piece of jewelry is misplaced, I take comfort in art's ability to anchor me in a world that doesn't make sense. Oh, I get chills even reading that back. So beautiful. But I want to ask you, months after you wrote that and we're here in 2021, the world's in a similar state as it was in 2020. How are you feeling now? How is your quarantine going? Yeah, that line really turned out to be pertinent in a way that I didn't expect. Um, I feel the exact same way, though, that there are these things in life that are always fleeting and that it's a part of life that we have to accept, you know, the ever-changing landscapes of our, our days and things and people. Um, and trying to answer that question of what I love about art and, you know, I have this magnetism towards art and for a while I, I couldn't quite understand it. And so in that exhibition text, it was my way to try to tackle that question. And it's what I, I came up with. And I feel this year it's been even more true. Um, I'm surrounded by art in my apartment right now and it really keeps me grounded. You know, I try to do yoga every day in like my tiny living room and I just stare at this one painting and it, it grounds me to this notion of time and permanence. Um, yeah, it, it's really anchored me in a year that's very unexpected. Um, it also was the inspiration for Canadian Art in Isolation, which was a project I did with Margot Smith, who's an artist where we donated pieces of art to long-term care centers. And that just came about from that same feeling of how important art can be in our lives and that it can, you know, add aesthetic value as well as emotional support. Um, yeah. And so a lot of, I mean, the writing that I do, I think comes from that place. And I guess to answer your question about what this year has been like, I, I feel incredibly fortunate that I have, those support systems of art and writing and a community of people that also enjoy those things. It, it, it's really helped me. Um, so yeah, it, it hasn't been easy. That loss of in-person community, uh, mm -hmm. as you said at the beginning, I didn't, you know, I, I didn't know that I was taking it for granted until we lost it. No, I know. I feel like so much has changed while it feels like nothing has changed over the past year, but we're going to go back. I mean, there's not going to be a sense of normalcy again. It'll be a new normal. Mm -hmm. But I think those in-person art exhibits, meeting for coffee, we are really going to appreciate a lot more profoundly. But I love that you said you have things like writing and art to go back to. I think there was, I saw a quote on Instagram and it was something along the lines of, when we look back at this time in history and during our darkest of days, we all turn to art, to artists and things that creatives have put out into the world. And I think you do that really beautifully. Thank you. You mentioned it, Canadian art in isolation, which I just have to pause and say is so needed and such an incredible thing that you founded. It's a community arts initiative where you connect artists and you donated art with seniors who are in self-isolation, these long-term care centers, is that still going on? Is there a way for other artists to get involved? Yeah, the reaction to that was quite overwhelming. <laughs> and the, you know, Margot and I were working like our jobs. And then we, you know, I think we thought it'd be a little easier than it was to facilitate the donations. But in reality, you know, um, her and I, like our apartments had kind of turned into these de facto art storage units. <laughs> I think, you know, we, we received more than like 300 donations and wow. it became, we did pause it after we had fulfilled 
um, art for every resident in three long-term care homes. We decided to put a bit of a pause on it just so uh, we could recoup, but it, it, it lives in other iterations that people had used our model in Kingston and Ottawa to run their own programs. So it still lives on. You know, I do still receive emails about facilitating like large donations. So, you know, an artist who had recently passed away had an archive of over, you know, a couple hundred pieces of art. And so they're looking as a way to donate it. And so we're still working uh, with things like that and connecting them to people in the city to get the art in long-term care homes. Oh, that's amazing. I love I love how you found a way to give back in this time, especially to seniors who are the hardest hit by this pandemic. I'm looking forward to being able to visit some of the homes and the art again and talk to people. Well, kind of on that vein, before we dive more into your writing life, can you tell us about Canadian Art Forecast, how that originated and grew to what it is today? Of course, yeah. So it it didn't happen with a lot of forethought I you know making an Instagram account is free I had this feeling that Canadian artists weren't getting the attention or respect I thought they deserved I was like why aren't some of these people household names and so I thought you know what better tool than to use Instagram and just post an artist a day and be able to spread their work in a way that um, you know quite honestly was like low like it was low labor on my end of just all I do is post a painting or photograph or sculpture and just add the artist's name and hashtag and tag them so I I don't add any extra commentary and I think the simplicity of that like allowed people to to enter into it it wasn't intimidating in any way it was just beautiful like you could just like the people's art for the sake of the work and Mm -hmm. And it really took off. And so within the first year, I had 10,000 followers. And it kind of signaled to me that there is a demand for this in the Canadian art world, that we want to support our artists and we want to celebrate them. And we just need more platforms to do so. And so, oh, I can remember now, but I guess towards the end of last year in 2020, I decided to turn it into a newsletter as well because I thought, okay, well, (laughs) I am a writer, so I could be adding a little bit more depth to the Instagram account. You know, it was becoming a little stagnant for me just posting on Instagram and I wanted to push it a little further. And I think there is room for Canadian art publications. You know, we have a few great ones with Canadian art, Border Crossing, C Magazine, you know, but there, I thought there was a place for like a more informal art writing that wasn't theoretical. It wasn't very serious. Um, you know, people had been covering those things and I just wanted this to be incredibly approachable. So it's from my voice. It's often just what I think about art. And then there's also interviews with Canadian artists. And that has been going really well, too. So I have more than 700 Substack subscribers within the first few months and yeah I I wonder what's next for that as well oh my god that's amazing I have so much to say about that too and I loved how you started a newsletter which for a while has been seeing a renaissance and I keep seeing Substack everywhere and as soon as I saw that you had started your own I was like of course she's always on the pulse of what is happening I think Alison Roman has a Substack a lot of journalists and editors are leaving like BuzzFeed or Glamour magazine or whatever to start a stub a Substack newsletter. So I think that's really cool that you are involved in that as well. I wanted to mention that. Yeah, I mean it's it's something that's a bit bittersweet because I think it indicates that there's major issues within the media landscape right now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, I wish that publications, you know, had staff writers and budgets and maybe treated their writers a little bit better that they people didn't feel as if they had to create their independent publications I also worry about how sustainable it is you know like subscribing to 10 different sub stacks and if you're you're paying for them it becomes something that I don't know how sustainable it is yeah for the time being I think it's good (laughs) if it can maybe like go you know create a turning point where people are paying for print media again that that would be the bright side to it. I know. I hope that happens. The media landscape is, I just am fascinated always. It just keeps hanging on and hanging on and evolving a little bit. And 
who knows, maybe this a bright light or a silver lining of the pandemic is that people will go back, I don't know, to paying for news media or something. Have you always been interested in art? Where did that appreciation and fascination come from? I've definitely always loved art from a young age. You know, I went to Harborfoot Harborfront Kids Camp in the art department for darkroom photography and painting. I also uh, visited a lot of museums when I was young, you know, at the AGO, but also I think when I was 13, I became obsessed with Van Gogh and my mom brought me to Amsterdam to go to the Van Gogh Museum. You know, I went to, you know, a show at the Met when I was 16 to see Pierre Bernard's show. Like there, it was this ongoing love of going to museum spaces to see art. I never thought that it was a career option. You know, it it did seem like something that other people did. You Mm -hmm. had to be, you know, a genius or a prodigy to work within the arts or to be a writer. So it wasn't until I became a bit older and was introduced to the art world in Toronto that I was like, oh, this is something that I could actually do. And I think as soon as that seed was planted, I didn't pursue any other career opportunities. I just wanted to be a writer. I love how you have merged the two arts, your appreciation for fine art and different forms of art with writing. And that's one thing you, like I said before, you have such a pulse on the arts and literary scene here in Toronto specifically. And I don't know if that's because you grew up here, but you're such a great social connector with creatives throughout the city. Is that something that comes naturally to you? Have you always followed your curiosities and surrounded yourself with like-minded artists and writers? I mean, not always. I Yeah, that's an interesting question. I feel like it makes me have to dig deep into like my personality. Yeah, I wouldn't say that I grew up with a lot of friends. And so I, I wouldn't say it's an innate part of me. It's something that I always wanted. And I, so I, I worked towards building lasting friendships and connections with people. And yeah, within meeting artists and the art world, I don't know, I think people appreciate the attention that I give to art and to like anybody that I meet. I mean, it, it comes down to, I, <laughs> I don't know, it sounds very basic, but I think it comes down to being nice to everybody that I meet, no matter who they are. And I couldn't imagine doing that any other way, but it's something that has been beneficial to myself as well, because it has grown this community and allowed me to, you know, like pull from all these different resources. If, you know, I had an idea that I wanted to work within sculpture, like I, you know, I could think of who to reach out to. And that, that isn't the point of it. The point is that I think we need a strong community to exist within the art world. And it's just so fulfilling to be able to grow those connections. Yeah, absolutely. I think what I like about you, though, is that some people, the word networking, I'm saying that in quotations, they do it, like you said, to kind of get that connection for themselves. It comes from a place of vanity or more selfishness, but yours is very genuine and you're very authentic. That word is overused a lot but it comes across naturally that you're really interested in people and what they have to offer their talents. So I just want to commend you on that because I think it is a rare gift that you have. It's amazing. And it's great for, especially a city like Toronto during a pandemic when writing and art creation is a very lonely business. It's nice to be able to have people like you that I can chat with on this podcast. And Thank you. That was all very kind of you to say but it also kind of I was like you are also describing yourself a little bit in that you're very much the same of like wanting those authentic connections just for the sake of connection well that's very nice of you say I didn't mean for this to be an ego pump up (laughs) but I I think there's something there that I've been thinking about a lot lately and while we're all locked down at home and in quarantine as an introvert. I mean, I am very used to being a homebody, but I've had to flex a different muscle to try to find that sense of community while we're all at home. Would you describe yourself as an introvert or an extrovert? An introvert, definitely. Mm -hmm. I read Susan Cain's book, Quiet, when I was an undergrad. It like changed my life. I was like, oh, this is who I am. Um, 
yeah, I definitely feel at home at home. Like I'm not super, <laughs> very much a homebody. You can go out and have bursts of extroversion and socializing, but then you need to go home and kind of recharge alone. That's how I think of it as well. I can have bursts of extroversion, but mm-hmm. my most comfortable natural state is a deep introvert. Exactly. And, you know, it's like not to say I haven't been missing those bursts of extroversion because I think it's the balance that kind of keeps me sane. The fact Mm -hmm. that I can go out and go to an opening or go to, you know, a friend's house or a dinner party or for coffee and have that like three hour socialization and then come home further and spend the rest of the time by myself. But just spending all the time with myself, it's a little bit much. Yeah, the balance is a little out of whack. It's too much, too much self-reflection and introspection. I know, just like a way to fill your days. Like, I guess, you know, you could just read constantly, but I don't know. To be honest, I'm definitely not just doing that. Have you found this extra time you've been able to be creative? You've been writing more articles, pitching, or have you found the state of the world is just so heavy that it's, it's kind of hard to make art. I would say, I mean, it depends the day that you ask me, but right now I would say the latter. Um, It's definitely a bit overwhelming. It's just distracting having so much going on and, you know, a lot to worry about to be able to be completely creatively sound. Um, But I, I do try, you know, I have been working throughout the pandemic and, you know, that hasn't changed too much from my before life that I always have worked from home, always been writing and taking calls. And so that hasn't shifted. So I would say my output is probably exactly the same. Oh, that's good. Yeah. I think the only difference is just the unknown of when this will end. When can we go to art galleries, walk through bookstores again? All of that is the daunting part for me, at least. Yeah. I'm really looking forward to uh, the vaccine. Yes, likewise. So you have written for some pretty major publications, and I want to dive in a little more to your writing life. Can you tell us just how you first got started and became a writer, other than your childhood being immersed, going to art galleries, and seeing that as a possible path for yourself? Mm -hmm. You know, somebody asked me this the other day, and they were a musician, and I thought similar to musicians where you start playing the piano at a young age or learning guitar. I had been writing since I was a young child. So if that was either doing like travel journals or little poems, I would publish in the yearbook in elementary school. I would like write little speculative fiction basically of like, what will the world look like in 10 years? And I would write little stories. And so I always was a writer Um, But how I became a writer as a profession, it was, you know, after my undergrad, I did art and contemporary studies at Ryerson. I didn't really know what to do. So I thought that I would just stay in academia. And I went back to Ryerson for literatures of modernity. And when I was working on my major research paper with Dr. Laura Fisher, she kind of suggested to me, like, have you thought about pitching publications And if you have, I have some resources that I can connect you to. So she sent me a PDF of how to pitch. I, you know, that was a foreign concept to me that I could just email editors at any publication in the world and suggest a story. And she connected me to an editor at the hairpin. And so that's kind of where it started out. And it opened my aperture to the possibility of doing it um, as a full-time career. Yeah, and I would say like the rest was history, I guess. But I just started doing it. I just started pitching. I like I pitched above my breeches at first. <laughs> um, you don't know any better. That's the best way to start. I mean, one of the first bylines I had was the Globe and Mail for that reason. I joined the binders on Facebook, which I'm sure has been mentioned before, which is just a um, a women or a woman oriented writing group. Um, you know, thousands of people are in it. And they had like a call, the Globe and Mail just had posted an editor there saying, oh, we're looking for design pitches. And so I just was like, okay, I'm going to think of a design pitch and sent it over and it was published. That's amazing. I know getting the a byline in the Globe is just such a amazing feeling and stamp of approval, I feel like, especially in Canada. 
Yeah, I wonder, like, <laughs> it's a funny standard to hold yourself to as a, a young writer. Yeah, but I love how you just said you just went for it. You didn't have any qualms. And it for a lot of people out there, if you're looking to be a freelance writer, it really just starts slow. You just get one byline for your portfolio and you build from there and you can use that for subsequent pitches. Exactly. Yeah. So it's like, it's very much like a snowball because once you've proven yourself to a publication, other editors will take you a bit more seriously and yeah, you just keep going. You get, you get rejected all the time. It's a a good lesson. Oh yeah. How do you feel about rejection now? Oh, if somebody's rejected me, me, it means they've replied to my email and I take that as the best sign of optimism and I'll just pitch them again right away. I just replied oh, to rejection email with another idea because I'm like, they, they answer their emails. So <laughs> Genius. I know I keep an Excel tracker and I, I keep tabs of, even if I get a rejection, okay, they answered and I highlight them in yellow, like try them again. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I think it's great though that you had a mentor, somebody in your younger years who was able to show you, oh, this is a pitch email. This is how you pitch someone. Even I had all these ideas. It took me a long time because I went to business school. I know how to write a business plan, but I didn't know, I have this idea. I want to write about it. Do I write it on spec and send it to them? Or do I just pitch them the idea? But to pitch them the idea, I feel like I need to write it to see what my what my thesis really is. So it took me a long time to kind of finesse that and researching and everything. But now, now it's just fun, I find, pitching. Yeah, I, I sometimes prefer pitching to actually writing. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> like 10 pitches in a, a big state and then they get accepted. You're like, oh, right, now I have to go and write the essay. Right, right. So that's actually a good question. How... How do you pitch now? Do you pitch one or 10 a month? Are you pitching weekly? What is kind of your routine for writing and getting pieces accepted? Within the last year, I say I would say that it shifted for me away from pitching and into being assigned work. Um, mm. so I will still pitch once in a while, especially for art reviews. Um, but that might be once a month some months not even um so yeah my pitching it's definitely um, a lot less than it used to be and also pitching very specifically so pitching editors that I know for ideas that I'm pretty sure that they would like and so that kind of relationship has changed but um if I think back I would say that yeah I would pitch maybe five or six things a month and maybe get half of them accepted and that is how Um, I would work. Yeah, you just keep going. Yeah, and it's been nice to be recognized and have people reach out and ask me to write things now. It it definitely takes a little bit of stress off of me. Yeah, you've proven yourself and you've built those relationships and that's kind of just what happens as you keep going. Yeah, though I know in 2021, I want to start pitching again because I want to kind of, you know, I don't want to plateau in my career I would like to you know if at one point my goal was to write for you know art form and garage and border crossings and once I've checked those off I realize now I need to um, make new goals and then start working towards them I was gonna say do you have any dream publications you really want to write for I mean the dream publications are the same dream publications as any writer so it's New York Times yep (laughs) Paris review. Oh my god, that's so funny. I have I have that written down as my top two right on my wall beside me. Of course. I mean they just they do interesting work and that's all you can ask for as a writer. Working yeah. with publications that are willing to take risks and edit you well and do beautiful layout and to be read by people, you know, that's a big part of it that sometimes doesn't get talked about enough, I think, is that you're supposed to be happy and fulfilled just writing and then that's it but it's hard to be a writer and feel as if you are just like navel gazing like you want that engagement with readers you want to create a conversation 
And so I feel like those are the things that the bigger publications can give us is that readership and people reaching out, like emailing or in a comment section that it feels as if you're not in an echo chamber, but that people are listening. Yes, yes, yes. I couldn't agree more. Writers, if we were just going to write for ourselves, ultimately, we would live in caves and just keep our manuscripts and our articles in drawers. But we write to be read. Exactly. I'm sure there's value in these in the cave writers. You know, maybe people that written a masterpiece. I mean, like, good for them to have that able to, you know, like self-fulfillment. But uh, yeah, that hasn't been the case for me. Yeah. And I think it's very important to say that and speak that out loud. I wonder if sometimes people think they shouldn't reach out to writers. I love it when people email me and say, oh, I read this. It was so good. Or I disagree with it. You know, I get like, it kind of keeps me going. You know, if yeah. I, I don't get those emails that often, but when I do it, it feels like I'm being, you know, seen and propels me on to more projects. Have you ever gotten a really nasty response to any of your articles? I mean, I'm not a political writer, so nowhere near what friends of mine have faced. And, you know, like sometimes when there's like a typo in an article and they're like, wow, <laughs> it was like, wow, oh my God. Know better. I was like, I'm actually not a great speller. I had a lot of difficulty spelling as a child. It's more about the ideas. Yeah. And it, maybe it's the editors. Somebody should have cross-referenced that. Okay, but, <laughs> um, and I don't reply. So if you want to send yeah. me an email. I'll read it, but you won't get a, you're not going to get a rise out of me. Yeah, that's good. That's a good kind of MO to have. Now, I have to ask you as well, you've written for one of my, my younger self was so enamored with Vogue. I was like, I'm going to get a byline in Vogue. And as I've gotten older, it's still on my list, just has dropped down. And you have achieved that. You've written for Vogue UK, Teen Vogue. Can you tell us how that came to be? and what it was like writing for those that that's the name brand in fashion magazine it's the holy grail of the fashion bible yeah so i had written for lenny letter which was you know a newsletter one of the og newsletters by lena yes oh my gosh i remember that i wrote an article about lenny letter (laughs) i want to read that So I had written for them a couple of times and, and they folded, unfortunately. And my editor there went to work at Teen Vogue and they asked if I'd like to come on as a contributing writer. So I'd write two to three articles a day. Whoa. Um, so I guess my response to what was it like working at Teen Vogue, that it was like incredibly difficult that the, you know, when we talk about the media landscape, it's really about publishing to an apex like that you are publishing so often in the hopes of meeting a click quota. Yeah. There was a demand for quality still, you know, there'd be like once in a while you can get away with doing like a listicle of like fun lipstick colors. But I do think that my editor there realized that I could write about like fashion in a very critical way and provide analysis through like cultural or historical context. And so they really loved those stories. So it was, you know, it was writing like quite in-depth articles um, on a very quick turnaround that I found very stressful. Um, Yeah, no kidding. (laughs) But of course it was, it was fun. Like it was, I did also, you know, used to subscribe to Teen Vogue. I got the copies in the mail and they don't do their print copies anymore. So it is very much this, like the speed of the digital landscape. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I, I felt myself like, definitely burning out quickly I you know I don't think I think it was like eight months that I worked there it was like less than a year that I was able to kick it and you know I went to fashion week and I found myself like any minute that I had I was running to art galleries like in between shows or if I had a day off on Monday I was like pleading with galleries that are closed on Mondays to open their doors for me (laughs) to the show because I wanted to write about art and I came back from that trip and decided to leave fashion writing behind, um, though I would still like write about fashion once in a while freelance, but to leave it behind as a daily 
career and to go back into art, which is where I found uh, my heart was. Yeah. Oh, that's so good. You came and conquered the fashion, the Teen Vogue, and now you have that under your belt and you can really pursue your passions and your interests. I mean, it taught me like that I can write quickly if needed. That is wild. What was can I? What was the word count per article really? Like a. I mean, yeah, it really ranged. I'd say like five hundred to twelve hundred words. And you had two or three a day. Yeah, though I do think I like I haggled that down to two. I was like, could not do three at all. That's still crazy to have an amazing idea, get it accepted, research it, write it, have it edited. That is. I really find that fascinating, like you said, with the clickbait culture, the online journalism, the speed, and that's where you do lose the quality. I mean, you're an incredible writer, and if you had more time to really research and get more in-depth, the piece would be even deeper and juicier, but you were under such constraints. I find that, I mean, that's the way it is, but it's just so interesting to me. Yeah, I don't think I would do that again, but... um... I do yeah. think it's a great publication. They really do publish interesting and meaningful work. Yeah. Do you prefer print or digital? I don't have a preference. I know lots mm-hmm. of people, like, they still get that buzz out of, like, seeing their name in print. But I, like, similarly feel that on online. And I think that's just coming up in the internet age. And, you know, when I started writing, almost all of the magazines were online that I was writing for. And so it's still fun when... I am in print, but it's not my, you know, my main, like what I'm seeking. I still get that. I I don't know what it is about print. I love it so much. It's beautiful. I still like print magazines, but um, yeah, I guess I I have the sense that like more people are reading online. I I do most of my reading online. So I I like the ability of it. Oh, a hundred percent. Even, I mean, I was so excited. I had the by- a byline in the Globe, went out to s- get this paper. I had to find, like, go to different stores to get it. I was like, nobody is doing this. Everybody has the Globe and Mail subscription online. They're reading it there. <laughs> oh, I definitely buy a couple issues of everything that I'm published in. I do the same thing. You, like, you have to go to a couple stores and find the magazine. You've got it. Yeah, that it's for yourself. It's fun. But I'm like, no one else is doing this. <laughs> I love to ask my guests and I just find it fascinating people's habits and routines and little quirks and rituals that they do, especially writers. So can you just kind of tell us fun little facts about your writing routine, even the mundane things like what you have for breakfast, how you take your coffee? Do you write in the morning or at night? longhand on your computer all of that fun routine stuff that I really find fascinating I'm definitely a morning writer um Mm -hmm. as soon as I wake up the first thing I do is have a coffee um I just have my coffee black and I start writing right away it's you know within those first few hours of the day sometimes I wake up early I have a sense that like I'm up before everybody else even though I'm not that early but you know, my phone starts ringing at noon. And so I, or, you know, even earlier. So it's like getting in my writing before people start waking up and emailing me and calling me. That's important. And so I even like put off breakfast because I want that time to just like get to the keyboard right away. Um, I definitely take notes longhand. And if I'm really stuck and I have a writer's block, I'll write it on paper and then I transcribe it. And that's like my best hack for writing. Um, mm-hmm. It like opens up something else in your brain or, yeah, I don't know. It, like you, I feel like I can be a bit more loose when I'm writing. Sometimes that like blank word document can be intimidating. And then yes, yeah, I have to do something that's like so quick and easy because I want to get back to writing. So I usually just do yogurt and granola or toast and a soft boiled egg and that's it. And then I keep drinking coffee. I I love that you drink it black. I'm so jealous. I need to get there. Yeah, I just don't know. I think that most like you just drink coffee like your parents did. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So do you have a writing uniform? Do you stay in your pajamas? Do you get dressed for the day? <laughs> I mean, I do try to get dressed lately with the pandemic. I think that's kind of like important to have a division between leisure and labor. So I'll try to get dressed though I'll get dressed in like comfortable clothes I guess change from pajamas to a sweatsuit <laughs> <laughs> yeah something 
like that. But no, I I'm not I'm not that finicky about my uh my schedule or the atmosphere. I have to be quiet. I don't listen to music. I I've always liked pin drop silence. I wrote about it for the CBC a few years ago for their sound sound of summer series. It was a music series. I was like, I don't listen to music. Like I really <laughs> need silence to think and to write and so I, I wrote it about Janet Cardiff and noise mm-hmm. which I guess I had been listening to as a way to like counter background noise before I kind of like close off I want to ask you what you're currently reading what you're currently watching if you're listening to any podcasts what is your cultural zeitgeist kind of right now okay um so I really got into audiobooks during the pandemic because it's the only way that I can clean my house is listening. Like I need this constant stimulation. So I'm listening to Little Eyes uh, by Samantha Schweblin, who is a Spanish writer. So it was translated to English and it's so dark and weird and I really like it. And in print, I'm reading Suppose a Sentence by Brian Dillon, who unpacks his favorite sentences throughout the century. So he starts with Shakespeare. I'm on James Baldwin right now, and it's an essay per sentence. Cool. Really like that. And then, yeah, I think I'm going to reread my friend Marlo Granado's book, Happy Hour, which came out this year. And I'd read it when she was uh, shopping it around for editors and I loved it I read it on a pdf on the computer in print I'm gonna I'm gonna give it a read again because I find that really inspiring to have friends that have written books so cool I j- actually just picked up her book so I'm I haven't read it yet but I'm so excited to dive in no it's I think you're gonna enjoy it the podcast as well so it's hard even to say I like you're wrong about reply all I'm listening to Brené Brown's podcast lately the Dear mm-hmm. podcast. I don't like anything dark. So I, it's like, I like the, uh, I like cultural or advice podcasts. Yeah. Um, inspirational, motivational. Yeah. And then I watch a lot of TV, but like, it's so bad. <laughs> Tell me, what are you watching? I watch some horrible TV as well. Okay. Well, of course I watched Bridgerton, which I love. Yep. Um, I'm asking, I'm watching Designated Survivor right now. I'm kind of <laughs> binging it. Just like I want to, I because I think I I watched a Jason Bourne movie with my boyfriend, and I was like, oh my god, I didn't know I like spy films, but I love them. <laughs> so I kind of wanted to continue the spy genre. But like feeling like I need. I've always felt this way that you know I work within the cultural industry that everything can become work if I let it. So even watching TV or watching film. I can start intellectualizing it and writing essays in my head. And so sometimes I really like to pick things that I know I will never write about. So, you know, I like listen to a lot of murder mystery books. I love Tana French. I watch a lot of just like popular Netflix shows because it's not in my realm of writing and I need that time off work. Oh my God. I love that you said that so much. I've been looking for a way to explain to my I can't say the word fiance. Betrothed <laughs> is too right. formal and he boyfriend's inaccurate, but anyway, he's always like he comes in sometimes I'll watch Real Housewives, like the worst trash TV, and he goes, I don't understand. You're a smart person. How can you let this infiltrate your brain? And I'm always just like, I need this mindless crap to tune out. But I like how you worded it a lot better. Especially right now when like they're you know, if we're not careful, there's no division between work, you know, between labor and leisure. And so mm-hmm. being able to create those boundaries for ourselves, like, we can't be on all the time. <laughs> we need no. to un- unwind. Yeah, 100%. And have there been any craft books that you really found useful in your writing? I th- you know, when you said that, I was like, crafts? <laughs> writing crafts? <laughs> It's a hard one on off the top of your head, I know. No, I know exactly what you mean because I have like a bookshelf full of them. Like I have Anne Dillard on writing who would probably be the best, but I have like the other ones on grammar. Oh. I can't get through them. <laughs> They're so boring. I, the grammar, I know. I have a whole shelf of them and I'll revisit them at certain stages of writing. I can't read them all in one sitting usually. Although it's a goal to try and take notes on it all, but 
like looking at my bookcase right now, like across the room. Uh, like, <laughs> called like elements of a story. To be honest, I'm not sure if they're useful because I think that you just learn those things innately and subconsciously from reading a lot. And so I read a lot and, you know, the grammar and the story structure, I think just becomes embedded in my own writing opposed to having to be explained it by somebody. That is very good advice. Very, very good. Oh, yes. I like, I mean, that's really the advice I'd give to anybody starting out writing is just to read more than you write. Mm-hmm. And it, it'll start to become kind of natural and innate how sentences flow and fit together. And it's, I find it's like a feeling as you write, you just know in your gut, this is good. After you've done a lot of reading, you know what is good. Yeah. Um, having been to school for writing, I did take, you know, kind of offhand tips that write, uh, my teachers had provided to the class and I internalized them. So somebody was like, oh, you know, most students don't know how to use commas. So just use a period every time you want to use a comma. I feel like I'm right like that now. It's Oh, that's a good, that's really good advice. Shorter sentences, you know, commas can be tricky and you're going to create grammatical errors if you don't know exactly how to use them. But you can't go wrong with a, a period. Like the sentence is done and it actually has more impact when you're just saying exactly what you want to say in each sentence. And another uh, professor said, you know, never have a single word and then a comma, like that hanging comma where people go there for a comma, like never do that. Don't put something on its own. And so I never do that. Like, it's just funny, like little tips that um, really helped me with my writing and I think has morphed into maybe my own writing style. Um, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Shorter sentences all the way. I, I have to exercise that muscle, but that's how people read, especially in our short attention span culture with Twitter and everything. Short sentences just get the point across a lot more. I think so too. Mm-hmm. So my last kind of question is, I know right now it feels kind of impossible to plan or even think about the future, but I would love to know what your aspirations are for a few years from now. You mentioned earlier your goals of opening an art gallery with a little bookshop. What is your big picture vision for yourself in life? That's such a hard question. It feels like something that I really have to figure out this year. There isn't a blueprint for the kind of career that I have or the one that I want. You know, it's not as if, you know, I'm a lawyer or own a flower shop where I can look towards other people and map out my career trajectory. It's so open-ended in a way that's intimidating some, sometimes because of, you know, the possibilities. I love working for myself. I just love the freedom and the creativity and the ability to do new things every week. So I know that's something that I want to continue Sometimes I think about like having like what would a tech startup look like in the art world? Like how could I cultivate an art community or provide tools for young collectors through something that hasn't been created before? And that's a question that I don't know the answer to, but I would love to to basically take the foundation of what I have, which is a strong art community in Canada, a social media following, my ability to write about art in a way that I think is accessible, my passion about art, my love of collecting art, and how can I merge all of these things into a business that you know infects people with the same love of art that I have? And how can I continue to live with art and work with artists? You know, people say oh, you could become an art advisor, but I'm working with collectors. And to be honest, like I do prefer working directly with artists and being able to help them write exhibition texts or market their work and think about interesting combinations of artists to have. And so, yeah, my pipe dreams, I would love to have an art gallery. I would love to have a business that helps people get into art collecting and what that looks like. And even being like an advisor to artists, if that is like, you know, these are all careers that don't quite exist 
Um, but yeah, like something like an agent for artists, if that's possible. But then, you know, if I get too wrapped up in the business side of things, I do, I keep coming back to wanting to be a writer. And so in that sense, yeah, writing a book, publishing either a novel or a book of essays would definitely be a dream. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, maybe I could do it all. <laughs> You can do it all. No, I think it's interesting that you say like, oh, there's no career because we're so conditioned to want to fit our interests into this box of a job or career, but you already know what you want. Like you have, you just don't have the exact label yet. So I think it's amazing that you're going to forge a new path yourself, merging all of your interests. Thank you. Yeah, this is so inspiring just to say it all out loud. Yeah, I really believe in, even if it's not fully formed, as soon as you start talking about it, you realize you have so much more, like, trust in yourself and you can figure it out more. Because if it just stays in your head, you can keep putting it to the back, like, back burner and not think about it. So I've had to condition myself to do that, too. Because even writing a book, I I was like, I want to do it. And the more I said it, I kind of figured it out how to do it. But anyway... Where uh, can people connect with you online, follow your work, follow Canadian Art Forecast, all that good stuff? Yeah, my personal accounts are always at Tatum underscore Dooley. So T-A-T-U-M Dooley, D-O-O-L-E-Y. And then the art accounts are Canadian Art Forecast, and that's C-D-N Art Forecast. Um, Yeah, and I like, you know, email, DMs. a little slow lately about replying to emails, but I do get to them all. So if anybody wants to reach out and I'm also, you know, like this notion of paying it forward, I'm always happy to share pitches and pitch guidelines with young writers. All right. Well, thank you so much. This was really, really fun. I really enjoyed this conversation a lot. Thank you. And I really hope we can go get a coffee again soon. Me too. I can't wait for that day. That's it for today's episode of the Word Weaver podcast. If you like what you heard today, please feel free to leave a review on iTunes, screenshot and share it on social media, and be sure to check out the show notes at louiseclairjohnson.com slash podcast. You can also find us on Instagram at Word Weaver podcast. Until next time. You call it substance over style.